I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun, cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's more of a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. Little background thrown in on the actors, some on the director, and perhaps if I'm doing my job, you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you want to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review. We are continuing our months-long theme of Asploitation. That's our selection of some underrated and overlooked classics that came out of the great nation of Australia. This week, we are diving into a meat pie western, 2005's The Proposition. Join us! This week, again, is totally the doing of the mighty Xerxes. Because it was he that did two important things. First, he pulled me aside and told me that I needed to be listening to far more Nick Cave. And then, putting his money where his mouth was, he gave me a bunch of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds albums. Second, when this movie was released, he told me in no uncertain terms that I had to see it immediately. Actually, he told me I needed to buy it. And again, he was correct. He drove me to the borders. Kids ask your parents what Borders was. And he made me grab a copy of it and add it to the stuff that I was going to buy anyway. And I have to say, you know you are real friends with somebody when they tell you how to spend your cash without any sense of irony or impropriety. If you're unfamiliar with Nick Cave, I I have to tell you my brows are furrowed at you right now, but no matter, we're going to fix this. Odds are you've actually heard his music and you were just unaware of it. Off of the 1994 Let Love In album, the song most people associate with Cave is Red Right Hand, a nod to Milton's Paradise Lost, specifically referring to the vengeful hand of an angry god. People in my generation were exposed to that album, or they came across Cave's baritone voice by way of the 1996 Wes Craven film, Scream, and all the subsequent remixes of that song used for it and the sequels in the franchise over the years. But for you people in Gen Z, the song itself is the theme music to the popular British crime drama, Peaky Blinders. 
Over the years, there have been some interesting covers of the song itself, but I have to say, I'm a purist. And hey, boomers. If you think you've avoided the melodious dark tones of Mr. Cave, I can tell you his song, People Ain't No Good, off of 1997's album, The Boatman's Call. Hey, it was featured in the 2004 family film Shrek 2. It's the song played by Captain Hook when they're in the Poison Apple Tavern. You've heard this. Shrek? Senor. Hey, what's going on? Where are you going? You wouldn't have had anything to do with this, would you, Harold? People just ain't no good A thing that's well understood There you go, boys. Just leave the bottle, Doris. Hey, why the long face? It was all just a stupid mistake. I never should have rescued her from that tower in the first place. I hate Mondays. I can't believe you're gonna just walk away from the best thing that ever happened to you. What choice do I have? She loves that pretty boy, Prince Charming. Oh, come on now. Is he really that good looking? Are you kidding? He's gorgeous. He has a face that looks like it was carved by angels. Oh, he sounds dreamy. You know, shockingly, this isn't making me feel any better. <sighs> Look, guys. It's for the best. Mom and Dad approve, and Fiona gets the man she's always dreamed of. Everybody wins. Except for you. I don't get it, Shrek. You love Fiona. I. And that's why I have to let her go. That's all fine and good, but it doesn't really help tell you who he is, and it just merely dates me. Nicholas Edward Cave was born September 22nd, 1957, and he is an Australian Renaissance man, a singer-songwriter, novelist, screenwriter, actor. Born in Warracknabeel, Australia, Cave had a fairly normal childhood. His parents were both educators, they encouraged him to study classical literature, which Cave actually did, but he routinely found himself in trouble in his youth. He was expelled from several schools, he was arrested for burglary in his teens, and unfortunately, in 1976, his father was tragically killed in an auto accident. He did attempt to attend university, but he ended up dropping out, finding himself interested in pursuing music, and, in what was chic for the day, heroin. Cave got really deep into the Australian punk scene of the late 1970s, and he did have some initial success as a member of the punk band Birthday Party. But they ended up breaking up in 1983 due to personal conflicts and, hey, problems from drug use. Cave formed the Bad Seeds in 1984 and fused his love of all things religion, violence, love, death, American Western culture, and all of that was turned into a melange of gothic, gospel, blues, and rock to create the Bad Seeds sound. I do get that he is not for all tastes. Personally, I love the 1996 album Murder Ballads, and seriously, that's all it is. It's songs about death and dying. Some are beautiful, some are indeed very funny and meant to be, by the way. 
but some are really tragic, and it's a tough sell for a person fresh off the street who's never heard him. But the man can write, and he is very capable of putting together a tender piano ballad, and has some very touching songs that he can share. Hey, see the aforementioned People Ain't No Good. Personally, I would say if you want to dip your big toe into some Nick Cave, either go with his late 80s, mid-90s work. Albums like Tender Prey or Let Love In are good starter albums. And if that doesn't grab you, 2008's Dig Lazarus Dig is a fantastic album. He's got some rockin' tunes as well. For my money, all of the weird things I like that he's done, there's a weird B-side that he put out with the Bad Seeds. Uh, It's called There Is A Light, and... Bizarrely, in the mid-90s, it showed up on the 1995 Batman Forever soundtrack. This is supposedly a movie podcast. Why are you gassing on about how late to the party you were about Nick Cave and his music? Ah, well, here's where we get interesting. You see, Cave, in his off time, pens poetry, screenplays, novels. In the mid-1980s, Cave met the up-and-coming music video director John Hillcoat, who himself was making a name directing documentary work for the Australian band In Excess. The two hit it off and collaborated with a few other writers and ended up penning a story based off of the 1981 Jack Henry Abbott monograph called In the Belly of the Beast, which is a collection of writings on life in prison. The completed screenplay ended up being turned into Hillcoat's 1988 film, Ghosts of the Civil Dead. It established a working relationship between the two men. Cave would go on to write his first novel in 1989, And the Ass Saw the Angel which is a reference to Numbers 22, verse 23 through 31. And it's a harsh southern gothic novel about a mute young man who slowly loses his grip on reality as he lives a wretched existence in a small southern American town which is gripped by religious fanaticism, which of course leads to a dunemal of extreme violence. It's intense, but a very interesting read. And I have to say, his second novel, The Death of Bunny Monroe, which he ended up waiting 20 years to write, as one of the saddest stories I have ever read, even though it's a black comedy slash satire, no matter. He's writing these novels, and Cave has basically telegraphed to the world that he was able to do more. And, hey, this is such a stupid turn of phrase. I hate it when people are saying that they are more than just a singer-lyricist. As if anyone can slide in and come along and, you know, write really good music, write really good lyrics. But, you know, 
industry likes to pigeonhole artist and compartmentalize it because it's easier to say someone is just a writer, just an actor, just a musician. So during this stretch of time, Hillcoat himself had a very respectable music video career, having worked with bands like Susie and the Banshees, Bush, Suede, Depeche Mode, Elvis Costello, Placebo, and of course, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. He also directed a 1996 thriller called To Have and To Hold, which actually didn't do very well at the box office, but hey, I can say I've seen it, and while it's not that great, it's interesting. For his next project, though, Hillcoat wanted to spend a couple years building up to making a film that would cover the Bushranger period of Australia. He was quoted in a 2005 Metro Magazine article stating that he wanted to celebrate the failure in our Australian history, which was tainted and morally compromised by violence. And he goes on to cite the 1906 black and white film about the Kelly Gang, noting, It was the first feature film for Australia, and it dealt with an aspect of our history and nation building through these bushrangers. But later bushranger films just became these colonial costume dramas, and they didn't visit that broader canvas. Okay, so for our non-Australian peeps, what's a bushranger? Well, in the late 1780s, when Australia was first being colonized, the first bushrangers were initially convicted criminals who managed to escape their penal colonies, or they were indentured servants who struck out on their own to get out from under their service commitments to colonial families with means who brought them over. Now, the latter is very similar to the frontiersmen in the American colonies during the early national period of the same time, those who went out to settle in the territory held by American natives um, away from established colonial governments. We have a very similar backstory there. So bushrangers exist out in this harsh environment, in some cases living alongside, and in other cases coming into direct conflict with the local aboriginal populations. They survived by hunting, trading, and acting as robbing highwaymen during this period. Bushrangers essentially operated in the outback for a period of roughly 140 years, with their heyday being the gold rush of the 1850s, before finally giving up the ghost in the late 19-teens during the end of World War I. There's a lot of cultural significance to the Bushrangers. They were often of Irish Catholic stock, which actually made a lot of sense for the day because who were the British often arresting? The Irish and sending them to Australia. And or who would take positions as domestic workers to afford the trip there as indentured servants? Once again, the Irish. So, this Irish-British-Catholic-Anglican battle ended up migrating to a completely different continent. And then continued generationally down the line as anti-authoritarianism against colonial forces evolved into anti-authority again in what would become the Australian government. Still, Australians themselves have a soft spot for bushrangers, Ned Kelly being a famous example, seen more in the light of rugged individuals, idealists, and taking on this Robin Hood mantle rather than just being viewed as an armed bandit back in the day. And that's what makes bushrangers such an interesting subject. They can be looked at from many different angles, and not everyone has the same opinion about them. During the Australian New Wave period, bushranger films were a subgenre, 
sometimes referred to as meat pie westerns or kangaroo westerns, you know, as opposed to spaghetti westerns made by the Italians. Films like 1970's Ned Kelly starring Mick Jagger, 1976's Mad Dog Morgan with Dennis Hopper, or 1982's The Man from Snowy River with Tom Burlingson. These are all great examples of the genre. And Hillcoat wanted to make his own version of a Bush Ranger picture. And so he taps his good friend Nick Cave, who he knows can write, to pen it for him. Cave himself had grown up watching Ned Kelly pictures and enjoyed the stories, so he was eager to write his own version in the same vein. Cave ended up banging on a screenplay that took three weeks, and aside from some formatting changes, what he wrote was what they took to shoot. It's a tale that covers cultural clashes, class divides, family, loyalty, and the real cost of colonialism enforced by the barrel of a gun. Hillcoat did need some help when it came to financing the picture, but he did manage to wrangle some grade A talent to come on board for the film, which did help get funding. You have Guy Pierce as our protagonist, Charlie Burns, a man completely conflicted with the horrible options laid at his feet. Ray Winstone is the troubled Captain Stanley, who sets the story's events in motion, and he plays him here superbly, constantly taking medication and slowly unraveling before our eyes. Emily Watson is Mrs. Martha Stanley, the captain's wife. Danny Houston is Arthur Burns, Charlie's older and psychopathic brother. John Hurt is amazing as Jelen Lamb, a drunken bounty hunter. David Wenham, uh, you might remember him as Faramir from Lord of the Rings. He's the colonial magistrate Stanley works for. Tom E. Lewis is the gang member Two Bob, and the great David Gapil is a Again, appearing here in another exploitation movie as Jacko, the aboriginal tracker who works for the colonial police force. This was not an easy film to shoot on location in Winton, Queensland. The crew had to deal with extreme heat. Temperatures would get up to being 115 degrees Fahrenheit, and that increase in temperature would cause the cameras to overheat and break. Flies plagued the actors when they shot their scenes, and the cast and crew each ended up swallowing their fair share before the film was completed. To combat all this, Hillcoat resorted to night shooting whenever possible to try to keep his actors comfortable. Houston himself loved the role of Arthur Burns. During a 2006 Q&A session that was held at the Boston Independent Film Festival, he was comparing the role of his character as being somebody that was directly out of Conrad's heart of darkness. A man who has been out in the wild, rogue for so long, in this horrible reality that is of his own creation. Yet, he kinda wants to be stopped on some level. He just can't do it himself. It's an amazing performance, and Houston is actually chilling on screen. Naturally, Nick Cave was tapped at the time to provide the soundtrack to the film, and he did just that. Along with fellow Bad Seeds member Warren Ellis, they teamed up to compose a haunting, somber score, heavily influenced by Ellis's violin. Cave sings very sparingly on the soundtrack itself. Specifically, he shows up on the song Gun Sing and The Rider's Song. And it's a very beautiful soundtrack, befitting of a hard but poignant film. But you know what? You've listened to me. 
take you all over the place from music to prison films to bush rangers so how about we get to the trailer what do you say do i need to introduce myself You better ask your husband. I will civilize this land. Who do you think you are? The judge and the jury? Arthur Burns must be stopped. My God, man, they raped a woman. She was my friend! You should never have left us. Brother, hang on, Mikey, come Christmas Day. What? I know why you've come back, John. May the Lord make us truly thankful for what we are about to receive. If you have to kill one, Make sure you bloody will kill them all. Australian outback. What is left of the infamous Burns gang, two of the three Burns brothers, find themselves having a raging shootout with colonial police holed up in a small shack. The outcome leaves only brothers Charlie, Guy Pierce, and the simple-minded Mikey, Richard Wilson, alive and placed in police custody. As the brothers are former members of the official Burns gang, they are accused of the rape and murder of the Hopkins family, a well-known family in the region. Captain Morris Stanley is a man who is trying to bring order to this savage land, but one who understands the nuance of existence, and he sees shades of gray do indeed exist and can be utilized as a means to an end, approaches Charlie and makes him the titular proposition. Do I need to introduce myself? I know I are. Good. I know who you are. Uh. <laughs> Your brother's taken a bullet. Stanley is in need of medical attention. Well, allow me to address the subject of your brother, Mr. Burns. Christmas, as uh, you're probably aware, is fast approaching. And Christmas this year will hold a unique significance for young Mickey here. Mickey. 
was on Christmas Day. I have made plans that he be taken from the jail in Banyan. I hang by the neck until he is dead. Charlie. You're a copper standing, not a judge and jury. Well, clearly, Mr. Burns, I am what I wish to be. So what is it that you want? I want Arthur Burns. I no longer ride with me, brother. Charlie. It's all right, Mikey. It's all right. <laughs> Australia. What fresh hell is this? Talking about Stanley. Listen to me now, Charlie. <laughs> Don't speak. Hush, Maggie, you'll be fine. Hush. <laughs> I wish to present you with a proposition.
suppose I said that I could give you the chance to expunge the guilt beneath which you so clearly labor. Suppose I gave you till Christmas. I suppose you tell me what it is I want from you. Hmm. You want me to kill me, brother? I want you to kill your brother. Charlie is asked to seek out and kill his older, psychopathic brother, Arthur, as played by Danny Houston, whose company Charlie and Mikey left because of those very tendencies, and he is most likely the actual one behind the tragic deaths and violations of the Hopkins family. Stanley's own men refuse to actively find Arthur, so if Charlie will kill Arthur within nine days' time, Mikey and Charlie will walk free, pardoned for any past crimes, if not, Mikey will swing from a noose on Christmas Day. Charlie takes his guns and his horse, and with a long, last look towards Mikey, heads out into the outback, still unsure of what he's actually going to do. Stanley has multiple problems on his hands. His beloved wife, Martha, is played by Emily Watson, for whose safety he is constantly fearing, keeps interfering with his handling of the situation. Angered that he is not just outright punishing the men that did this to her friends, the Hopkins, causing her to join in with the rest of the rabble of the town against her own husband, unable to see the larger picture, herself a sheltered woman of the day. Stanley's own men, the locals, they're slovenly, lazy, and equally unable to see the game of chess that Stanley is trying to play out. His own sergeant, Lawrence, works against the captain, leaking information of his deal with contempt to members of the town and to the local magistrate, Eden Fletcher, as played by David Wernham, a man who does not like Stanley and who lords his authority over him. Hoping to curb Lawrence's influence, Stanley ends up sending him and the aboriginal tracker Jacko, David Capil, to go check out unsubstantiated murder claims that local aborigines had attacked and killed a man. In short, he sends them on a wild goose chase just to buy Charlie some time to attempt to complete the deal. Charlie makes his way through some old haunts in the outback, picking his way towards the territory his brother has carved out for himself. Arthur is so violent and so savage that the local aboriginal tribes call him the Dog Man and they refuse to help stop him. Spending the night in a dilapidated shack the Burns gang uses from time to time, Charlie encounters a drunken Englishman named Jelen Lamb, as played by John Hurt, who invites Charlie in to join him for drinking and engages the young man in some conversation. Do you pray, Mr. Lamb? Good Lord, son, no, I do not. I was in days gone by a believer, but... Alas, I came to this beleaguered land, and the god in me just evaporated. Let us change our toast, sir, to the god who has forgotten us. But first, cardinal rule, never raise a glass with a man whose name My name is Charles Murphy.
species by means of natural selection by Charles Darwin. Oh, don't be thrown by the title. He had some most fascinating things to say. Chilling things. Mr. Darwin spent time studying aboriginals. He claims we are at bottom one and the same. <laughs> He infers, Mr. Murphy, that we share a common ancestry with monkeys. <laughs> monkeys! <laughs> Mr. Murphy, Russia, China, the Congo, oh, I have traveled among unknown people in lands beyond the seas. But nothing, nothing could have prepared me for this godforsaken hole. You see, Mr. Murphy, I am something of a fortune hunter. And what fortune do you hunt out here, Mr. Lamb? Oh, that would be my question to you, Mr. Murphy. Unhand me, Murphy, or I'll slit your fucking throat. We are white men, sir. Jim, common force is meaningless, Mr. Murphy, as he squats up there on his impregnable perch. So I wait, Mr. Murphy. In spite of his flowery prose and his desires to discuss the merits of Mr. Darwin's new assertions on this whole evolution thing, Charlie sniffs out very quickly that Lamb is a bounty hunter who is looking to find Arthur. Charlie ends up knocking him out with his drinking stein, but he leaves the old man alive. Charlie then leaves the shack and ends up sleeping out under the stars, only to be awakened by a group of aboriginal men standing around him. He is speared in the chest and loses consciousness, but right before he does, he hears gunfire and sees the man who stabbed him drop. He wakes up in the camp of his brother, Arthur, up in the mountains, being cared for by gang members Queenie, as played by Leah Purcell, Arthur, and his companions, Tubob, as played by Tom E. Lewis, and Samuel Stote, as played by Tom Budge. 
and they are wary of Charlie's return. Arthur is not as untrusting, but he does pointedly ask exactly where his little brother is. Oh, Charlie, who is he there? It's all right, Charlie. You want to know why I've come back? I know why you've come back, Charlie. Look at that. Be humble of heart, Charlie. This is the end of things. You're my brother, Charlie. You belong with me. We are a family. All of us. This is getting me acquainted. Samuel. Be kind. It's tolerance, Charlie. Since I was a boy. It's just a little crack. <laughs> Where's Mikey, Charlie? Oh, Mikey stayed behind in Clarence. Left Mikey alone. He met a girl. Mikey met a girl. Hi. Mikey met a girl. <laughs> <laughs> What's her name, Charlie? Molly. Molly. Molly O'Boyle. Molly O'Boyle. Red-headed Corleone, no doubt. Right. Right. Like the sunset. Like the sunset. What does she do with this? Farmer's daughter, can she cook a good lunch? Oh, just stop it. <clears throat> Mikey's not the same stuff as us. You flung to the depths, you and I. He worships you, you know. There was a time we both did. Back in town, Captain Stanley has been personally guarding Mikey, and gets to see how actually simple Mikey is, which further leads him to believe that the young man is not responsible for the crimes that the Burns brothers are accused of. A mob forms outside of the jailhouse, with the men in town demanding to extract justice against Mikey, backed by an imperious Fletcher who demands the full punishment of a hundred lashes be administered for the rape and murder of the Hopkins family. Bring him out, Stanley. And the side standing. We want justice. 
I'll shoot first person who lays hands on Mike Burns. Give him to us. going to shoot your wife as well, Captain. Martha? She was with child. For God's sake. Martha, if this flogging goes ahead, it will be our best sentence. What if it had been me? Martha's joining with the mob breaks Stanley, and he watches helplessly as the mob drags a confused Mikey out and ties him to a whipping post to receive the statutory 100 lashes with a cat of nine tails whip. Mikey ends up only receiving 40 lashes as the crowd becomes disgusted with the display. Fletcher himself turns white, and Martha faints during the ordeal. Stanley full of rage, grabs the whip from the officer administering the blows and throws the blood-soaked leather in Fletcher's face. An apoplectic Fletcher sputters and then fires Stanley, but he's already walking away from him supporting Martha. Arthur and Tubob go out scouting, and they encounter Sergeant Lawrence in his group making camp, noting that they've just randomly killed some aborigines in retaliation for the supposed murder of Dan O'Reilly. The men are all killed in their sleep, with the exception of Sergeant Lawrence, who taunts Arthur, telling him that he knows something. Charlie's been tasked with killing him. Arthur doesn't even acknowledge this. He just stomps the officer to death, and returns to camp with an extra horse for Charlie. Charlie and Samuel wake up, hogtied and gagged, captured by a now very angry Jelen Lamb, who intends to wait for Arthur to arrive and kill him, but not before he gets some vengeance on Charlie for knocking him out in their last exchange. Arthur does arrive, and he wounds Lamb with a bullet to his gut, and then he proceeds to torture the bounty hunter with a knife, all the while acting as if he is just helping the man out. Charlie is disgusted by the display, and pulls a gun, first pointing it at the back of Arthur's head, but then shooting Lamb in the head instead to put him out of his misery. Arthur angrily asks his brother, why can't you ever just stop me? Charlie confesses to the gang that the police will be hanging Mikey on Christmas Day, and they need to go rescue him now. The gang all dress up as cops using the uniforms from the now-deceased Sergeant Lawrence's men, and they infiltrate the town jail, subduing the officers who let them in, and finding a hysterical but dying Mikey. Two Bob and Charlie spirit Mikey away, while Arthur lets his demons out, staying behind with Samuel to torture and kill the remaining officers. Charlie again is disgusted, but is so concerned for Mikey's well-being, he just leaves, with Arthur shouting after him that they should all meet up at Captain Stanley's home on Christmas to finish this. After getting away, Mikey does regain some of his senses and dies peacefully in Charlie's arms. Tubob is angry and blames Charlie for all of this, stating that none of this would have happened if Charlie and Mikey hadn't left the gang. 
leaving two bob to finish burying his brother charlie ends up racing to the home of the stanleys trying to intercept arthur for what we are about to receive may the lord make us truly thankful amen, amen. merry christmas merry christmas Captain Stanley and Martha are sitting down to have a quiet Christmas dinner together when Arthur and Samuel burst through the door and attack them. Stanley is violently beaten and tortured while a horrified Martha is forced to sit and just listen to it all, while Samuel greedily eats their meal holding a gun on her. After a bit, Arthur shoots the captain through a shoulder and announces to Samuel that it's time to have some fun, instructing him to drag Martha into the room with the intention of raping her in front of her husband. Charlie enters and tells Arthur that Mikey is dead, looking at him with intensity. Arthur ignores his brother completely and tells him, listen, Samuel's about to start singing. Charlie steps into the room, and before Samuel can begin to even assault Martha, he puts a bullet in the back of the young man's head, and then spins and fires two shots into his brother, telling him, no more. Arthur staggers out the front door, while Charlie turns to the wounded captain and tells him, I'm going now to be with my brother, as the shell-shocked Stanleys watch him walk out the door. Charlie follows a path of blood through the Stanley Homestead's garden and finds Arthur away from the property, sitting alone. Uh, you got me, Charlie. Charlie ends up sitting in silence, not answering his brother. Arthur quietly dies while the two of them sit and watch the sun set across the outback. Music swells. Credits roll. Okay, where do we even begin to unpack this? How about the concept of what's asked itself. The proposition is so poignantly bleak. The proposition is a loaded, heavy burden for all involved, and it gets worse as time goes on, because most people involved see that there's no real winner to be had. For Stanley, the very actions he takes to protect the populace, to protect his wife, all of it is done at the expense of going against the law he is charged with upholding and that eats away at him. For Charlie, no matter what action he takes, he's going to be responsible for the death of a sibling, and that eats away at him over his travels. Even Arthur, as he begins to believe Charlie has other intentions towards him, privately he seems to have moments of clarity from his psychosis that perhaps he should be stopped and killed by Charlie. Everyone here is amazing. And, well, seriously, Guy Pierce plays the conflicted Charlie Burns with great intensity, 
For my money, Ray Winstone steals every scene he has on screen. Captain Stanley, as Winstone portrays him, is such a complex yet sympathetic character here. He's a man who we keep getting these hints at has managed to, quote, marry above his station. The beautiful and refined Martha was his ticket to a successful life. He loves her, he cares for her, and he worries that a woman of her background, breeding, demeanor will not be able to survive in, as he says, such a godforsaken place that is the 1880s Australia. This causes barely concealed contempt from Fletcher, who speaks down to him every chance he gets, always seeming to hint that he is unsure that, quote, Stanley is the right man for the job. His relationship and position are equally scorned by the men under his command. Sergeant Lawrence and the other men despise Stanley, as if Stanley thinks he's better than them now, that he's married up and has a position of authority. The irony is, Stanley's not better than them, but he's definitely smarter than these violent drunks that make up the police force, and he knows it. Stanley is rationally the only person here who sees the bigger picture, and thus he's able to understand the ramifications of both what he has done and what is coming based on the actions of the police and the townsfolk. And while he's a realist, he is haunted by these choices and his own actions. The very relationship he is desperate to protect is the one that nearly kills him. Martha does not have the worldliness to understand what is actually at stake. To her, there's just criminals here and they need to be brought to justice, and that is meted out by honorable men. Men who she thinks her husband should be like, but she is unable to comprehend that she is demanding punishment come to a seemingly innocent man, and what's more, in doing so, it will bring about the death of both her and her husband, a fate just like the Hopkins family that she holds in such esteem. And while I'm not quite done discussing the whole Martha Stanley dynamic, this is actually the perfect opportunity to segue into something I feel that director Hillcoat shot masterfully. That is the flogging scene. We, the audience, get to see, still horribly I might add, three blows get administered to Mikey before we then get to having that scene intercut with another scene. We jump from the beating to a scene of Charlie, Arthur, and the rest of the gang having a moment of repose, listening to Samuel entertaining them around the fire. And that gives us, the viewers, a chance to show Charlie in deep, albeit nervous, contemplation over having to kill Arthur. Samuel sings a song that runs for over a minute and 30 seconds, and during this time we keep cutting back and forth between the idyllic song being sung and Mikey continuing to receive lashings. And while we can hear Mikey's cries and the sound of the whip, we no longer hear the counts coming from the guard delivering the strokes. That is until the song ends. When we come back to the scene in the town, we are now treated to a grotesquely bloodied Mikey who is panting and sobbing. And while the officer wrings blood from that leather whip and begins to resume, that's when the heaviness of the scene actually hits us. We realize that they are only on blow 38 of 100. Horrible for sure, but I actually love how Hillcoat has hidden it from us. 
you think you're seeing the town folks get disgusted because of how long this has been going on, when in reality it's the opposite. They're disgusted. This has only been going on for a short time, and it is starting to dawn on them that they are torturing a man. And law or no, he is not going to survive these full 100 lashes at this rate. So let's now jump back into that relationship between Captain Stanley and Martha. As a character, one has no doubt that Captain Stanley loves his wife, wants her to be safe, he cares for her well-being. And on the surface level, it's true, and we can take it as just that. You have violent men lurking on the outskirts of town, ready to rob and or visit violence upon, quote, decent folk, such as the often name-dropped Hopkins family. But. Cave is using this entire scenario as a larger metaphor and commentary on colonialism. Think about it. They are driving away the, quote, unhelpful blacks, in this case the native aboriginal peoples, and they are locking up or hanging bushrangers who threaten societal norms. Martha isn't just Captain Stanley's wife in this scenario. She is a stand-in for the British-influenced ideal of Victorian womanhood transported from Britain to the Australian outback, and thus her innate innocence, supposedly, and delicate constitution must always be protected for the sake of propriety. It's colonial sexism and racism displayed subtly, and very well, I might add. That also leads us into how the film addresses relations with the Aboriginal peoples themselves, and it's interesting and not at all wrong in how it's shown. We get to see both ends of the spectrum with the characters of Jacko and Tubob. One is a, quote, good example of colonial Aboriginal peoples, a loyal tractor on the colonial police payroll who helps the Australian government track down and euphemistically eliminate problem Aboriginals. On the other hand, we have the true danger, I'm using quotes there, to the colonial powers, an educated half-black man versed in the ways of both cultures who openly flaunts colonial superiority and has fallen in with a band of bushrangers unwilling to conform with the laws of the land. That makes Tubob dangerous, and it also makes his murder of Jacko all the more important. It's his utter contempt that a fellow native would make himself subservient to colonial power, instead of being treated as an equal the way Tubob is treated in the Burns gang. Tacking on to that, not that I wish to revel or dwell on the racism of the film per se, but John Hurt's amazing portrayal of Jelen Lamb, he's phenomenal, and part of what makes him such an interesting character, as well as a scene-stealer, is Mr. Lamb's anger over the assertions that Darwin is wrong on his theory of evolution, and his insistence upon finding common ground with anyone who would potentially come into conflict with him. And he does that by often quoting the following phrase. We are white men, you and I. We are white men, sir. Yeah, he he says that a lot. Also, he has his very telling assertion, um, and this is one that the English often held towards the Irish back in that day. Ligatures are not so one of my many talents. Oh, 
that you are singularly bereft in any talents whatsoever, Mr. Burns. To be speared by a savage? How extraordinarily quaint. Easy, Mr. Burns. I was drunk. You wouldn't got me because I was drunk. But I'm not drunk now. I'm on the job now. Not a bad day's work either. What is an Irishman? But a nigger turned inside out. Now, I would love to say this is a passing bon mot, but this is actually a very real, and it was a commonly held belief for the time that this film is set, again, in the 1880s. An insult to both two different backgrounds for people. On the surface, it's contending that people of color, in this case directed at the aboriginal peoples, that they are less than members of the white race. And then it's going further to posit that those of an Irish background are even worse off and lesser than those of the black race as they are turned inside out. Now, this is nothing new. In the United States, anti-Irish sentiment would hold sway at least until the early 1840s. It started to change then, and then by the early 1900s, a fresh wave happened when we saw massive amounts of immigration. But at least at that time, as far as the world was concerned, the Irish were considered to be white men. It then took even longer before the English and the rest of the colonial world would change their attitudes towards people of color. Those enlightened views would unfortunately come later still, almost a full century later. I love the character of Lamb. He embodies this time period so well, and he is a great villain in a film that is already rife with villains. But he's unfortunately a very accurate character of the 1880s, and I have to say, Hurt plays him here marvelously. So, I can hear you out there now. Hey, how was this film received? Well, actually, for a film with a very limited release, it ended up grossing $5 million against a $2 million budget, which I have to say is a very impressive feat. And unlike many of the other films that we've discussed here at the LSCE, the proposition was actually very well received from the film community, critics praising it for its ability to spin a thought-provoking story in the face of hard violence and on-screen brutality. Pierce, Winstone, Hurt, Houston all were praised for their performances. But the fact remains, this was a film that not a lot of people actually got to see it back in the day. And it's a fantastic one, and many people have not even heard of it, walking on by and not giving it the proper time of day. Hence why we've chosen it here for this month of exploitation. Now the version of the proposition that we screened here at the LSCE was the 2006 First Look Home Entertainment DVD release, which I'm ashamed to say is still available on DVD on Amazon at this date for the paltry sum of $3.56. It should absolutely be more money. The film can also be obtained on Blu-ray for $12.86, or you can get a <laughs> dual media version that has both the DVD and Blu-ray together, I think for $8 now on Amazon. All well worth it. 
And for that, you get director and writer commentary from both Hillcoat and Cave on how the story came together, featurettes on the making of, photo galleries, nothing to sneeze at for such a raw and uncompromising exercise in Western genre. And look, folks, I'll say it again. We don't get anything here for telling you where to purchase films from any place. We just think it's important to keep supporting physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to these films that we all know and love keep releasing the content that we want to consume. And at the end of the day, isn't that all that really matters? Getting the thing that you want to see? And besides, this film, while admittedly rough, is gorgeous and should be seen on pure principle. And isn't that what's important? Do yourself the favor, get a copy of it. Go see the proposition today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I know I did this last week. I'm going to do it again because it's still available for the next couple days. You know I tug at your coat sleeve at the end of each show, but during these crazy days with the COVID virus, we have an opportunity here for you to have a fairly painless way to help out your fellow man. You've heard me tell you in the past that we are featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators of podcasts alike. And the good folks out there at Podchaser have pledged that through April 16th, for every podcast review or an episode review on their site, they will donate 25 cents to Meals on Wheels. For every reply, then, that a podcaster leaves to said reviews, they'll double that amount. Now, that may not seem like much at first, but keep in mind... Podchaser has thousands of podcasts on its website. And if you consider this, this, for example, is episode, uh, if you count our bonuses, I believe this will put us at 58 episode offerings. So in theory, you could be contributing almost $30 if every person in theory logged in and decided to leave a review for each episode we ourselves had posted. And there's no limit to the amount of reviews you can leave. So again, I would say, please, take the time. Go out, review episodes of podcasts you like. doesn't even have to be mine. Podchaser is a free website. You don't have to do anything other than make an account, and then you can start leaving reviews. So please, folks, if you could, take the time. You're only incidentally helping me and other podcasters, and in reality, you are absolutely helping by feeding people in need. So what's not to love about that? In the meantime, you can follow us now on our new website, that's lscep.com, and you can subscribe there for updates, and you'll find links to all of our podcasts, and they'll lead you back to the platforms of your choice. Please, if you could, subscribe to us there. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personal, maybe you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please feel free to send us an audio message by way of Anchor, a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there, please stay healthy, wash your hands, keep social distancing, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy, everybody.